Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle within us the fire of your love, and may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, as you know, I'm in this uh, sermon series that we conclude today called Freedom Summer, uh, reminding you that Freedom Summer was an actual time in our nation where people sought to bring freedom to those who were most oppressed. Young people in the North and Midwest came to the South in order to work for and protest for uh, the civil rights and the right to vote. And now we continue to be in that kind of climate as well. And, and so I, I chose that to lift that event up, but I also chose it to remind us that we are people who live in the freedom of relationship with God and that we need to pay attention to that. And we're in the summer, the summer months, and uh, so Freedom Summer seemed appropriate. I also want to tell you that we've been uh, doing a Bible study each Thursday evening at 6.33 on Zoom, and we've been talking each Thursday about the scripture that would be preached on the the following Sunday. And last Thursday, we read and talked about this passage of scripture that Mike just read for us. When I asked him to read, I said, it's going to be kind of like last week. It's a little, you know, there's some tough stuff in it. And he texted it back and said, well, I might have to hold my nose while I read, but I'll do it. <laughs> but anyway, we, we talked about this, and... Um, and in our conversation, uh, we began to realize that a lot of us have been raised in a tradition that said that the Bible was true and absolute and should be interpreted uh, exactly and that there should be no wandering and, and all of this and, and, and kind of a focus on an absolute teaching. And that's why I picked the title Black and White and Red All Over because Many of us were raised in traditions that said there's this absolute only way of understanding Scripture. And what we as progressive and liberal Christians have begun to discover is that actually um, there's a lot, the, the interpretation of Scripture is broader than, than more narrow. And that we discover that when we ask questions, when we wonder, when we sometimes doubt, that the Holy Spirit engages us. And we begin to discover the new things that God is trying to say to us through the scriptures. And that's why the title came into focus. Instead of restricting freedom, the Spirit of God seeks to broaden our freedom by reminding us that our God is still speaking to us in this time. Now, um, I want to tell you a story. When I was at Texas A&M University, well, I actually, when I was pastor at Friends Congregational Church, United Church of Christ in College Station, and y'all may have heard this story before, uh, but it's so ingrained in my understanding of Scripture that I have to tell you about this. Um, I was invited to come and uh, speak to a group of students or any students that wanted to come on what the Bible has to say about homosexuality. Well, so it was a big room, like, about twice the size of this one, and lots of people were there, and I was like, okay, why did I think this was a good idea? Uh, and right as I was getting ready to talk, a whole, like, 
outfit of clearly freshman A&M cadets came in, uniformed, with their Bibles in hand, and sat right down on the front rows. Now, the reason I know they were freshmen is because I know, knew the difference in the uniforms. And what I was clear about is that their upperclassmen had sent them to this event, right? And so uh, I get to talking, and I say my little piece, and at the end of what I had to say, uh, one of them stood up and challenged me and said, you know, well, you know, it just seems to me your whole lifestyle and how you're reading Scripture and how you're interpreting it is really destining, destining you for hell. And I said, gosh, you know, um, I need to tell you something. Just because you haven't heard this interpretation of Scripture doesn't make it not so. I stand in a historic line of great theologians and great biblical scholars and great people of faith who has shared my view of Scripture for centuries. And in fact, your view of Scripture has only come in to the interpretation of Scripture since the 1940s and 50s. So just because you haven't heard it doesn't mean it's not so. And oh, by the way, you know, I think we're pretty lucky that um, you don't get to decide if I go to hell, and I don't get to decide if you go to hell, because that would be bad for you. <laughs> Instead, I, I want you to know that God decides our eternity, and that God decides eternity for all of us. And I want you to think about God as a generous and gracious God, instead of a God who judges without love. Well, it got real quiet in the room, and pretty much after that, all the questions were over, which is kind of a good thing to have happen when you're in that setting. Well, um, I want to talk about how we understand Scripture again today, and how we interpret Scripture. And I want to do it within the context of this first letter of the, the Apostle Paul writes to his student, Timothy. Before I do, I want to say that a lot of people, as I said, interpret Scripture as black and white and red. I mean, just, you know, that, that's it. You know, if I've heard it said, if the King James Version of the Bible was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. <laughs> you know, and, and, and so... I just want to remind you that in the tradition of the mainline Protestant churches, there's, a, especially in the United Methodist Church, there's a, a the biblical understanding that our understanding of Scripture is what is called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. And that, yes, Scripture is primary because it's the grounding of our faith. It tells us in, in the First Testament Scriptures, which are the Hebrew Scriptures, and in the New Testament Scriptures. Uh, the story of our faith. And so it's vital for us to know and understand. And, and so there's scripture, but there's also tradition. And tradition is the history of the church. And so we look not only at the bad things, because there are plenty of them. Uh, when I took church history, I thought I was going to have to abandon my faith completely. Uh, you know, the Inquisition and things, I mean, and you know all those things but that there's so much in tradition. I mean, if you look at the saints, if you look at the desert mothers and fathers, if you, 
if you consider the bigger picture of the Christian faith, then there's so much that we can learn from that. And then, and also learn what not to do, right? And then there is experience. That what my experience is tells me, my experience of my relationship with God, that tells me who God is and how God loves. And there is reason. And so when we get to reason, and Richard Rohr actually says that we don't really, um, he doesn't really want us to focus on reason because we are always in our brains, and he wants us more to be in our hearts, you know. But uh, he still agrees with the Wesleyan quadrilateral. But reason um, means that the scriptures are broadened according to our ability to think and reason. And so, for example, the creation story. There are some Christians who actually believe that in the creation story that God created in seven 24-hour days. But those are few and far between. Most of us understand that that's an example of God's uh, creative work and that God's time is not our time. And also in the Levitical laws. You know, a lot of people want to restrict certain Levitical laws example is that a man is not to sleep with a man. But, but what about eating shellfish, for God's sake? Or wearing clothes with different fabrics? I, all of us here today probably have on mixed, mixed fabric clothes. And I don't know about you, but I could eat my weight in shrimp. So, uh, so I, I just, you know, our reason tells us that this doesn't work anymore, Right? So I want you to think about that. Now, that's not to say that we just get to harem, scare them, decide what the scriptures say and everything else. We do that within the context of these four things and within a faith community that holds us accountable, right? So, um, so here's, what, here's what I have to say about that. Um, I want us to consider the First Testament and New Testament scriptures that seem to speak about homosexuality. Seem to speak about it, Okay. There are seven texts, often called the clobber texts, that are cited to condemn homosexuality. And, and when I say that, there are seven of them. I want you to know that in all of the Hebrew or First Testament scriptures and the New Testament scriptures, there are 31,102 verses. Seven of them seem to speak about homosexuality. So I'm going to run through them right quick. The story of Noah and Ham. After the flood, Ham the son goes in and sees his father naked, and that's an allusion to some kind of sexual encounter. Uh, in, in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is probably the one used most often, uh, we hear that uh, the, three the two of the three visitors to Abraham and Sarah go to Sodom, they get there, there's a, 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 a cabal of men that gather and demand that these men be brought out so they can have their way with them. And Lot says, oh, no, you can't take our guest. Take my virgin daughters instead. Excuse me? There's something wrong with that. Uh, but the, the sin of Sodom is not about sexuality. It's about hospitality. 
the welcoming of strangers into our midst, which the Hebrew scriptures are all over that, that we are to welcome the strangers because they bring gifts. And then there are the Levitical laws. I just talked about them, condemning same-sex relationships. But, you know, we've kind of abandoned all the other Levitical laws, haven't we? And then there are two words in the New Testament in the vice list. We heard one today, uh, sodomites, and in 1 Corinthians. So we get a couple of references. And then in the opening passages of Paul's letter to the Romans. So here's what most biblical scholars think about all this. Um, That the the people who wrote and edited the the scriptures, that they didn't have a concept of homosexuality as we do today as something that happens in a loving relationship between two same-gender-loving adults in consensual, loving relationship. What they looked at was the outsiders in their midst and how it would impact them. And outsiders are often feared. And so uh, they didn't have that understanding. So, as in the case with um, with the Genesis and, and uh, the Genesis stories, uh, they describe rape and attempted rape. Uh, the Levitical uh, passages are actually pronouncing an, a, a thing that says that these cultic, uh, cultic prostitution is wrong. The cultic, the pagan cultic pro- prostitution that was going on. And male prostitution and pederasty, and by the way, that's a Greek word that means that very wealthy and powerful men would take boys and use them for their sexual pleasure. Now, nobody agrees with that. Nobody agrees with that. It's violence. The, Paul is condemning the cultural violence of his day is what he's doing. And, and the, the passage from Romans is he is arguing uh, that there are temple cultic practices, such as the Isis cult in Rome, that are practicing things that are violent against people and against children. So if the biblical authors did assume homosexuality was evil, which, by the way, was not the case among educated Greeks who thought that this was con- same-gender-loving relationships were among the highest expressions of love, we do not theologize off that culture. We don't make assumptions and theologize from that culture. We theologize from the whole of the text of Scripture that shows God and relationships in many forms. Now, the Scripture we read today, the author, uh, authorship, I'll remind you of the letters to Timothy are in question. It may have been Paul, it may have been some other followers of Paul. But even today, our most contemporary translations of Scripture continue to include the word sodomite and fornicators. And in the most recent of the mainline Protestant translations of this passage from Timothy, they says they are people who are sexually unfaithful and people who have intercourse with the same sex. And I think that's personally a violation of the translation. And I'll tell you why. The word homosexual does not appear in the translation, English translations of Scripture until the 1946 translation of the Revised Standard Version. It is the first time the word 
homosexual. And so we go from Paul condemning specific acts that are violent behaviors against oppressed and weaker people to a condemning of a whole culture of people without an understanding of same gender loving relationships. So we need to encourage, we need to think about and encourage uh, in our conversations uh, an understanding of all this. We need to see through a wider lens and see what Paul says before and after this one verse 10 that lists all these violent actions, including sodomites. And the lens is this. Paul is intent on keeping the church of Ephesus sound in the followings of Jesus. And there's a lot of people that are preaching and teaching, and it's just all over the place. And Paul is talking to Timothy, who is the primary teacher of that church, and saying, here's how you stay faithful. Here is how you stay faithful. And that's his main concern. Um, he's intent on lifting up the teachings of Jesus and helping Timothy keep the church on the right path. And before his list of common, uh, common, condemnations, he tells Timothy to instruct certain people not to teach any different doctrine. And that's what he's trying to do. And then following the list of condemnation, he includes himself as being unfaithful, and talks about the mercy and grace he has received, saying, I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor, a man of violence. And he goes down to the end and says, the saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I remind you that the word sinner is best translated as having missed the mark. Having missed the mark. It's not that you're condemned to hell. It means that you miss the mark, and we all miss the mark. So the challenge for us today is to broaden this narrow reading that so many people, and especially in our political climate today, in which human sexuality has stepped to the forefront, especially for our trans siblings, that we have to broaden this understanding and help people better understand. But here's the most important thing I want you to hear in this passage of Scripture, and it is that Paul emphasized that the aim of such instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. If you hear nothing else today, this is it. The Apostle Paul, with his best reflection on the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, says, everything hinges on love. Everything, every last thing hinges on love. Love of self, love of neighbors, love of enemies, love of creation, love of God. It all hinges on that. And I want to tell you, God is big enough for all our questions and all our doubts, all our judgments, and all our brokenness. And God, in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, in all of that, offers us freedom. Father Richard Rohr, whom you know I just love, says this, the message of good, the good news is this, you are loved, you are unique, you are free, you are on the way, you are going somewhere, your life has meaning, 
And that is all grounded in the experience and knowledge and the reality of the unconditional love of God. This is what we mean by being saved. When I was pastor at Friends Congregational Church one afternoon, on a Monday afternoon, uh, a young man came into the church and sat down in my office and asked if he asked if he could speak to me. And so we sat down in my office. And I said, what can I help you with? And he said, yesterday at church, my pastor said in his sermon, because I'm gay, I'm going to hell. And then he fell apart weeping uncontrollably. And after a moment I said, well, I don't believe that. I don't believe for one minute that you are going to hell. I didn't tell him that. I didn't really believe in hell, but I, <laughs> I said, I, I, I uh, you know, I don't, I don't believe that. And, and I said, you know, there's a lot of scriptures, but here's what I know. And this is from my experience. Children, animals, and really, really old people who have one foot in heaven, they don't care. They don't care who you love. They just want you to love and be loved. And children especially, they don't care. They want you to love and be loved. And... And that's what I want you to go from here. You know, these are after God's heart. And anyone else on this good earth that follows this way. Jesus said, unless you become like little children, you will not gain heaven. No, you are not going to hell. You are beloved of God. So... This is our freedom. This is our freedom. And we have to dig a little bit to find it in our scriptures. But it's there. It's there. And, and so I'm going to say something that may be a little controversial, but that's okay. Um, I'm proud to be woke. I am proud to be a woke person. And I wish I was more woke than I am. Because our true freedom comes in our ability to awaken to God who loves us beyond our imagining. And that really is what it's all about. In our seeing God in creation, in our seeing God in each other, in our seeing God in even our worst enemy, that love is everything. And so that's our calling. Amen?